I'm just going to start by praying if that's okay. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are here right now. God, we just acknowledge that you are with us in this room, the God of the universe that breathed the stars into life is in this room with us right now. Father, would you just increase our amazement at that? We thank you that you're here. Father, we just thank you for the time in your presence this morning. Father, where every weight, every burden is just lifted off, Jesus. We thank you so much for that. God, we thank you for the joy that you've been stirring in us and putting in us. And Father, I just ask that you would continue to increase that joy in us. Thank you that you give us joy instead of mourning, Jesus. You give us beauty instead of ashes. That's the God that you are. And Father, just all this, we just acknowledge you. We thank you that you're here. We just ask that you will be glorified. Amen. Okay. So this week I was visiting someone that I know in Nottingham, um, and one of the nights I was there, we went out for a meal, and we decided that it'd be a, quite a nice idea. Um, instead of having to choose for ourselves what we wanted, because it's always a bit stressful. There's so many options when you go to these restaurants, choosing for the other person. And, and we'd point to it on the menu and show the waitress, and when it turned up, it would be a surprise. Um, yeah, so that idea could either be the best, well, a good idea, a bit, bit of fun, get to try something new, or it could be the worst thing in the world, depending on who you're with. Um, so if you're with someone that you know really well, and they know you really well, and they know what you like, they know what you don't like, they know about the time of day, what you've eaten earlier, they know what you'll be fancying. If it's someone who you've spent a lot of time with and you'll know really well, then it's not much risk. But there's still, still a bit of fear that they might erratically think that you'll want a salad or something, but <laughs> <laughs> generally it's pretty safe if you know them well. But if you, it would be the worst thing to do it with someone that you didn't know. Someone who didn't know what you liked, someone, or, or someone who didn't like you, who knew you, but just didn't like you, and would order your salad out of spite. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I like a salad. I don't mind a salad for lunch, or, or like with, with a burger and chips or something. <laughs> Salad's good, but as a main meal for a dinner, it's just... It's just not really good enough, if I'm honest. Like, you don't want a salad if you're going out for a meal. Um, I, we were talking to the waitress about it, and she was saying that if she did it with her boyfriend, that she's a vegetarian, and her boyfriend would probably think it would be really funny to order her a steak and just watch her. Um, yeah, and so this is kind of introducing the idea that I'm going to be talking about today, and that's to do with trust and faith. Um, and trust and faith is something that requires action. It's something like you could say, oh, I trust you to pick my meal, but actually it takes trust and faith to actually let them pick your meal. By the way, my meal was lovely, well picked. Um, yeah, they, that, what was it? It was a, it was like a Caribbean curry with like beef, with, oh, I was like marinated for 10 hours. It was amazing, it was really good. 
Yeah, they, they were happy to. I, I did good. <laughs> um, yeah, so faith requires action. Um, and faith is something that's talked about loads in the Bible. It's, run, it's a theme that runs right the way through from start to finish. This concept of having trust, having faith. Um, but it's a question we've got to, got to look at and got to ask ourselves is like, okay, what does that actually mean for me? How do I actually do this? How do I actually take hold of this so that it doesn't remain just a concept of trust or a concept of faith? How can this be something that's in my life? How can I actually do this? Um, and the whole idea of trust is in its nature about giving up control. And that's a really countercultural idea. Really countercultural. We live in a culture where it's all about control. I want to control people I spend time with, everything that happens, I want to be able to control it. And if I don't, then I get a bit worried. Like that's the culture we live in. But actually, trust is giving up control. Um, so today I'm going to be looking at a guy called Abraham in the Bible, who is a great pioneer of faith. He was like a massive, massive hero when it comes to looking at trust and faith. Um, pretty central guy in the Bible. He's in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, um, but he's mentioned loads of times in the New Testament as well, so you know that he's like a pretty important guy. Um, I, there's so much in the, in, about Abraham, there's a lot there. I'm, some, I'm kind of doing a bit of an overview, dipping into some bits, ignoring some bits. Uh, we're just having a bit of a fly-through tour of Abraham and looking kind of at the themes of trust through that. Um, he lived in a place called Ur, and then he moved to Haram, um, and he lived amongst a pagan culture, um, but he managed to have a faith um, and wasn't diluted by the pagan culture and worshipping idols around him. Um, and he had a wife called Sarah, um, who was barren and couldn't have any children. Um, and yeah, so, and then we hear the Lord speaks to Abraham one day and he says this, this is Genesis 12 verse 1 to 5, if you want to look it up. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All of the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, Abraham departed as the Lord instructed, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. See, Abraham here is called by God to leave everything he'd grown up with, to leave the familiar, to leave the comfortable, and go into this completely unknown land, which is a pretty scary thing. And actually, God is quite direct with what he's asking. He says, go, it's a commandment. He speaks to someone with authority. It's not just a suggestion, oh, I've heard it's nice over there. It's go into this land. And... But the thing is, it's not, although it is an unknown land, there's also, it says, into the land that I will show you. And that implies a promise of guidance. 
that there'll be guidance there. He won't be left alone, even though it's unknown. And then there's this promise that the whole earth will be blessed through Abraham. And, and there's promise later on about him having children and it being through his descendants that he's blessed. But Abraham doesn't have any heirs or any descendants. So he's a bit confused about that and his wife can't have any children um, and she's really old. So what happened is, is Abraham looked around and he saw that the circumstances didn't fit with the promise that God was saying. God was saying that his descendants would be so many and all this stuff. But he didn't have any descendants. And his wife was old and couldn't have any children. So it didn't really make sense. But Abraham's response to what God said to go, go into this unknown land was that he did. His response was to trust and to go with what God said. Which is really cool and shows, shows a really great level of faith. But then we have... Abraham's first mistake. Um, Abraham was an amazing guy. We can learn a lot from him about, about trust and about faith. But he was also a massively flawed guy and made a lot of mistakes. And we can learn just as much from those mistakes. Um, yeah, so his first mistake was he was travelling on the way to this unknown land through Egypt. And he was worried that, because his wife was so good looking, that someone would take a fancy to her and want, want Sarah as that. His, as their own wife um, and so he was worried that they'd kill him for his wife um, so what he did um, just to be safe he told everyone as he was going through Egypt that Sarah oh no she's my sister she's my sister so that he wouldn't be killed for her and then so yeah Abraham says this lies out of fear for his life and says that Sarah's his sister and then Pharaoh takes fancy to her takes Ab Sarah as his wife as Pharaoh's wife, um, and Abraham's rewarded with loads of sheep and goats and things as payment for his sister. Um, but of course, God, we see, isn't really having any of it. This wasn't quite the plan. God's like, what are you doing? And he sends a load of plagues on Pharaoh's house. Um, and Pharaoh realises what's happened, that that's why the plagues have come, and he gives Sarah back to Abraham and says, why did you lie to me? And then they're both sent out of Egypt. So what happens here is although Abraham was trusting God, he was trusting God because he was following where God was taking him and what God had said, there came a point where he, he let fear come in and he tried to take back control for himself, tried to live according to what he thought was wise. See, the problem was that he, Abraham, was still trying to uphold and protect himself. Which meant that he didn't trust God to do that. He didn't trust God's ability as a protector. Although he trusted God, he didn't trust God to protect him. <coughs> trusted God up to a point, and then beyond that point, he takes it all back into his own hands. And then it's really interesting to read God's response to this. See, we could think, oh, God's been like, mm, Abraham messed it up a bit. Maybe he's not the guy for this. Remove the promise. No, God doesn't remove the promise. He actually reaffirms it and adds to it, which is really cool. And I think why God does this is that it, first of all, helps Abraham to understand that it's not about Abraham's own performance or about how good Abraham is. 
that that, that, that isn't what the promise rests on. God says to Abraham that he will give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants will be so, so many, more than all the stars in the sky. And then Abraham, again, looks at his situation and because he has no heir, assumes, oh, maybe it means that one of my servants will become my adopted heir and, and lead this on. And then God replies saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're, you're going to have a blood heir, Abraham. Um, and then, also in Genesis 15 verse 1, God speaks to Abraham and says this. He says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you, and your, your reward will be great. Do not be afraid, Abraham, I will protect you, and your reward will be great. See, that is the thing that Abraham really needed to know. The problem was actually what he believed about God. The problem was that he didn't believe that God could protect him. And God's response is affirming the fact that God can protect him. The problem wasn't inherently the fact he lied about his wife. The problem was that he didn't trust God to protect him and that was the symptom of that. And as confirmation of all these promises, God decided to make a covenant with Abraham, a, a legal deal which um, Abraham would just really understand through this how much God meant what he was saying. Um, so it's interesting to read, it says, the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain. He's making this covenant so Abraham can know for certain, which I think is interesting that it's possible have certainty and faith. They're, they're not mutually exclusive things. You can have certainty and faith because the certainty is in God. So what they did for this covenant in these days, if you're making an agreement with someone, they would get, this is a very simple explanation, you can look into it more, it's really cool, this is my kind of paraphrase. They get a load of animals and they chop them all up in half and they lay them out. Um, and then the two parties would chat about the, the deal they were making and the kind of terms and conditions of it, um, the, the covenant they were making, and they would both walk between the animals. And that was a kind of really visual, visual metaphor, visual example um, of, of the covenant because it was saying to the other person, cut me into pieces like these animals if I don't keep my end of the agreement. That's what they were saying to each other by walking through. It's saying, you uphold your end of the deal and I'll uphold mine. But then it's slightly different to that, how God makes the covenant with Abraham in, in this book that we read. It's that Abraham gets all the animals, he lays them all out, and then God makes Abraham fall asleep. And um, in the dream, there's, the animals are all there and there's a smoking furnace and a flaming torch which represent God. And the smoking furnace and flaming torch pass between the animals, but Abraham doesn't in the dream. It's only God that passes between. And that's a slightly different kind of legal deal. It's more like a promise and more like a will 
So, because it has no condition on Abraham's part for receiving it. So, it's kind of like a will has no condition. It's not about what you do to earn a will. You can't break agreement with the will. It's something that's promised to you. And actually, the reason God did this, God did the covenant in this way, was to really show that it would be on God to fulfil this promise. That it wouldn't be through Abraham's efforts. And so he didn't let Abraham walk through the pieces because actually it was on God that this promise was coming. Because Abraham didn't earn this promise in the first place. And God's conditions wouldn't change and didn't change based on Abraham's performance. So he could never earn it, this promise, and therefore he could never uphold it. And that is what God is, is confirming here. He is creating God is creating certainty. See, if the, if the promise of all this stuff rested on Abraham and God, and they both had to keep their ends of the deal, there would be no certainty there. Why? Because Abraham, as we already know, massively flawed. God is not flawed. So the fact that it just rests on God creates certainty, and that's something that God wanted Abraham to have. This whole idea of doing the covenant that way is is again really countercultural to what we're used to. We live in a culture that says you only get what you can earn. You only get what you deserve. So you work this many hours, you get this. You're nice to me, I'll be nice back. You're mean to me, I'll ignore you. Like it's, you only get what you earn, what you deserve. And that's why the gospel is, is so reckless and it's so scandalous and it's so countercultural because it goes completely against that. Because um, we can never earn it and we don't deserve it and yet God gave it. And that's what's happening here. It's not about Abraham performing or striving or maintaining anything. And that is what God really wants to ham home. Hammer home? I don't know. You get what I mean. To Abraham. Um, yeah, and then it speaks about this in the New Testament. Um, in Romans 4, verse 1 to 5, it says this. So how do we fit what we know of Abraham? This is in the message version, by the way. How do we fit what we know of Abraham, our first father in the faith, into this new way of looking at things? If Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to reprove him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. The story we're given is a God story, not an Abraham story. What we read in scripture is, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right, instead of trying to be right on his own. If you're a hard worker and do a good job, you deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that the job is too big for you, that it's something only God could do, and you trust him to do it. You can never do it for yourself, no matter how hard and long you worked. Well, trusting him to do it is what gets you set right with God. Sheer gift. And that just really makes the point that it's nothing that Abraham could have earned or deserved. And I think that's really cool. It also says in the New Testament, that we are, if we are Christ's, we are Abraham's heirs, according to the promise. So, 
We are heirs of this promise through trust. What was the promise? That the whole world would be blessed. And actually we get to be part of that. The whole world can be blessed through us. This covenant that God made with Abraham is very similar to the, to the style of the new covenant. The one that our names are written into. That's the kind of covenant it is. It's that God does something and we receive and we're accepted by God. That's it. Our name is written into that kind of covenant where God does everything and we do virtually nothing. After this covenant, it says that Abraham believed for certain and God said to him, walk with me and be blameless. That's such an invitation to walk with God and be blameless. And then Abraham makes another mistake. So he knows for sure that he's going to have a son and it's going to be a blood heir. But his wife is still barren. So he thinks that he has a chat with his wife and they decide that they're going to make it happen through uh, one of their servants, Hagar. So Abraham sleeps with their servant Hagar and Hagar gets pregnant. See, sometimes we do a similar kind of thing. We believe something to be true. We believe what God says is going to happen to be true. But then we do what we think is wise and we take it in our own hands to try and achieve it. And we end up using other people and damaging them in that process like Abraham did. See, even though Abraham had faith in God and God's promises and acted upon them, he still, so he had faith in God, but he still, in a way, had faith in himself. He trusted in, in the flesh, in what he could do himself. And first of all, well, as we just read about trying to create this promise, trying to make it happen on his own terms, and then before that, it was trying to keep him safe keep himself safe rather than resting in God's protection. And there's a story that someone told me um, which I thought illustrates this quite well. Um, it was, I can't remember where in Africa it was, I think it was in a slum in Kenya. Um, but there was this couple and they moved to Kenya and they were walking through this slum and they found an orphan boy and he'd been begging there uh, on the street um, for all of his life, all of his parents had died, he had no relatives, he was sat there in little orphan clothes that were just broken and, yeah, horrible, dirty, and he just sat there day and night begging. And they were heartbroken, this couple that saw this boy, and so they went to the authorities and they put through all of the paperwork and they got it all sorted and they legally adopted him. And so he, they took the boy, they told him, and they... They moved him into their house and they gave him clothes and they gave him toys and they loved him and they, they nurtured him and looked after him. But then a couple of days later, he was missing and they couldn't find him anywhere. And then they went back to the slum and he was sat back there with his old ragged clothes on, begging as he was used to. See, 
What we believe about God affects a lot of things. See, in our heads, up here, we know, in case you didn't know where your head was, um, we know stuff about God. We have head knowledge. We know that he is good, right? We know that he has plans for us. We know that we are seen. We are known that we are known. We know that we are loved. We know that he is not distant and he is right here. We know it. We know that he is a perfect father. We know that he protects. We know that he provides. We know that he nurtures. We know all this to be true. And the Bible says that we're, we're legally adopted into the king's family, into God's family. We've legally, on the cross, the transaction legally went through, and we're now his. We're his kids. But sometimes we still fall into thinking and acting like that's not true, like we haven't been adopted, like we're still an orphan sat on the, tree, on the street. We put back on those orphan clothes. For example, we know that God is our provider. Yeah, we read it, God will provide. He's our provider. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as we hit hard times, we frantically try and provide for ourselves, and we let fear come in, keep us awake at night, and we try and provide with our own ability, and we, like, we let fear ripple us. When actually it says, and we know that he's our provider, and that's what orphan thinking is. Still thinking like an orphan when we've been adopted. See, the thing is that we can... How, how we approach this matters. We can try to change our actions, but actually, that won't change anything. It's just like treating the symptoms, but not actually the underlying problem. We can't just try not to have an orphan mindset. It's like trying to be kind. Have you ever done that? Where you wake up and you're like, today I'm going to be so kind. I'm going to be so kind. It doesn't last long. Well, maybe that's just me, but it doesn't. It needs to go deeper than that. It needs to go way deeper than that. Otherwise, it's just a plaster on a much deeper wound. So beneath actions, we have our thoughts and we have our feelings. But we need to go deeper than that still. We need to go right down to our identity to our core beliefs. Our core beliefs about what we believe to be true about God and what we believe to be true about ourselves, about what God thinks about us. And that's kind of our worldview, the way we see the world. And that can be caused by a lot of things. It can be caused by our upbringing, by our experiences, by things people have spoken or said about you, by your memories, by wounds that have happened, that can influence the way you see God and the way you see yourself. For example, if, this is just an example, but if growing up you had, when you were young, you had a group of friends and you were really good friends with them and then all of, all of a sudden they decided that they didn't like you and wouldn't play with you anymore as a five-year-old kid or something and so they ignore you and then, okay, obviously that's heartbreaking as a kid and then maybe you grow up and it happens again with a different friend who decides, actually, they didn't want to hang out with you anymore, you weren't cool enough, so that happens again. And then that results in thinking that, that's, that you're not lovable, that you are 
always going to be rejected, that you are not worthy of being a friend. And you have put on that mindset. This is unconsciously, no one obviously thinks this, but actually deep down, they believe that. And actually, once you start to believe that mindset, you start to look for things that validate it. So if someone is a bit short with you, or someone doesn't, for whatever reason, it may be completely innocent, but someone has to cancel a plan, you look for that to validate the fact that you aren't loved. And you take this stuff and you put it to reinforce this belief. Another example could be, um, often, often the way we see God is really influenced by our own fathers. Um, so for example, if growing up you had a father that was, he was there but he was emotionally absent. He wasn't there when you needed him. You were upset and he would just kind of look at you and not be there for you. If you grew up with that kind of father, that maybe he was angry, maybe it didn't take much for him to get angry with you. you that can result in, and I've seen it quite a few times, that can result in you thinking the same about our Father God, that he, that he, although he's there, he's uncompassionate, that he isn't able to protect you, that he's angry, and you can form this hidden belief about God without even realising, based on all the stuff that's happened to you. And actually, the root problem is a lie that you've believed, the lie that, for example, the lie that God is angry at you, or the lie that your friends are always going to reject you. That's that you aren't lovable. It c comes down to a lie. And actually, we need to go through a process of letting God shine through to all of this stuff and highlight what lies we're believing. So the definition of a lie, so everything God says is truth, and anything that disagrees with God's, what God says, therefore must be a lie. Because that's what we're measuring it by. If God says it about me, then it's true. If he wouldn't, then it's a lie. And so we need to sometimes go on this journey. And actually it's really painful sometimes. And sometimes it's a really slow process of letting the Holy Spirit look deep and find this, this stuff that's affecting the way we live our lives. And yeah, and... And he wants to take us on a journey into greater and greater wholeness and healing our pathways of thinking. Um, God's a healer and he's a healer of he's a healer of our bodies, but he's also a healer of our minds and our hearts. And he wants to bring us into greater and greater wholeness and to understand who he is more and more. See, the reason he can do this is because he was broken. He was broken himself, and we have a God who is, who is big enough to take on our brokenness. And sometimes that process takes time, and is painful, and involves forgiveness, and yeah. See, the thing is, you can easily put it off, because we get used to living with a certain level of brokenness in our lives. For example, if you have a fairly old car, you'll know this. There's all these little quirks about your car that only you know about and you forget, you think they're normal. Like, for example, oh yeah, the back left door, yeah, you have to reach in and open it. And then, 
Uh, you, you just think it's normal and then you're driving along and you hear a do 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 and first of all you're like a bit worried but then a couple of months later it's still there you're like oh I know that noise it's that one and then maybe you get another noise and it's like and then a couple of months later it's still there you've got the do do and you've got the do and you're like a friend gets in the car and you're like is your car okay and you're like you're listening and you're like no I know that one yeah I know that one no we're fine and then we're driving along and actually, that can be like our lives a lot of the time. We get used to a certain level of brokenness. A certain, yeah, level of brokenness in our lives we grow accustomed to. And sometimes we even quite like because it's comfortable and familiar. Um, but actually, that's not the place where God wants us to live. See, the thing is, that it is only Jesus that can go that deep. All these self-help books out there, they can't go that deep. It's only Jesus who can go into that deep place. See, the gospel at its core is transformation. Yeah. And it's, it's about God changing the way that we think and our belief systems. And that's talked about as the renewing of your mind. See, the actual word repentance, that means to change the way that you think. All of Jesus' life teaching his disciples, most of it wasn't giving them knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. It was teaching them to think like him, to have a mindset that was kingdom-focused. So this, this means us changing where we put our values and our reliance from ourselves to in him and in his nature and in his ability and in our sonship. In the fact, we are adopted by the king. And out of that, the way we think, the way we feel, and therefore the way we act will change. It has to be that way around. And if we do that, we won't act like orphans. We won't wander around like orphans anymore. We will act like we are actually adopted by God. And that is what trust is at its core. Trust is deep in his nature. Knowing that I do not and cannot uphold myself anymore. I was never created to. See, what I'm inviting you to do is to say yes to a healing journey. Say yes to a healing journey for our hearts, for our minds and our beliefs. And to upgrade our image of God. Ask God for an upgrade of the way you see him. And he might take you into place and show you, actually, you're kind of believing that about me. And actually, that's not really who I am. He's really good at the way he does it. And just, he will take out the lies and he'll replace them with his truth. That you want an upgrade of the image of God, to see God closer and closer to how he actually is. That's what I want. Okay, if we get back to the book of Abraham. It's not a book, whatever. Um, yeah, if we look at God's response to Hagar. So, this is, this is actually really cool. So, what happens is... Um, well, this part's not cool. Hagar and Sarah have a fight, and 
because uh, Sarah is now jealous of, of Hagar, um, and Hagar gets sent out, um, this pregnant lady gets sent out, and then God speaks to Hagar and says that um, her son's going to be called Ishmael, and actually God upholds the promise that, that Abraham's sons will be blessed, even for Ishmael, the not really in the plan kind of son. Um, and he blessed him and he made him into a great nation, which I think is really cool and really gracious of God to do that. And then after, even after this mistake, God comes again and he makes another covenant. And he made it clear to Abraham this time that it would be through, it would be his blood son and it would be through Sarah, his wife, that it would happen. So there's no kind of more avenues he could go down. Um, so this covenant that he makes is um, circumcision. I'm not going to go massively into it now, it's, but to put it simply, it's a kind of outward sign of the inward reality of trust that God was forming in Abraham. And also, it's a bit of a blunt metaphor of where not to put his trust in the flesh. <laughs> And then we read later on that Sarah falls pregnant. The woman who couldn't have any children, she falls pregnant and she gives birth to a son. Um, the start of the promise of all this stuff is born. God comes through, he does the impossible and Isaac is born. And Isaac means laughter, which I just love that, laughter. And Abraham at this point is a hundred, so he's, he's not just like, Slightly old, he's really old. <laughs> and Sarah's 90. That, that's really old to be having a child. And I, yeah, I love that they named him laughter. It's just great. Um, just where God promises something, he pulls through, he does it, he provides. And actually I think that there's a reason that God waited so long to give him the child. I think God could have given him a child through Sarah straight away, but actually he waited a period of time. Um, and in that time, God was shaping Abraham's heart. He was, Abraham was learning to trust. He was learning that this promise was about God and through God and wasn't anything to do with him really. It wasn't something that he could earn or something he could lose. And that was something he needed shaping in his heart. <coughs> and then, if we read on later, Isaac, the promised child, grows up a bit. And then, God asks Abraham to sacrifice him, to kill him and give him to God. Which doesn't seem to make sense, but... They set off, Abraham and his son Isaac grabbed some firewood and they set off on this mountain on probably the most awkward hike ever. Um, because Isaac's going, oh dad, uh, where's the sacrifice? Um, and, but actually Abraham's response to him is, says, God will provide. And I don't think he was just saying that so his son would stop asking questions. I think he was saying that because Abraham had finally got this. 
He finally got that God was his provider, that God was able to provide even when he didn't understand. See, and that is, oh yeah, I'll carry on the story. Um, then they get up and then they make this altar. He puts Isaac on it, he ties him all up. And then he's about to kill his son because God said so. And then an angel comes and says, stop. I will provide a lamb as a substitute to, to sacrifice instead. And then they find a ram in the bush and they sacrifice that to God. And they take the, I'm not sure whether it'd be less awkward or more awkward than the way up, but it was still <laughs> not a fun journey for either of See, when we look at Abraham's life, I see an invitation to follow. To follow when we don't understand. And everything around us seems to say that it's impossible. What God said is impossible and can't happen. See, Abraham really followed God. He didn't just believe in God. That wouldn't have been enough. He followed God. And he knew him as Lord. And I think that's kind of key. Knowing God as Lord. As Lord of, of everything. Of Lord of his life. And that means, if God is Lord, that means that my life isn't my life anymore. It's not my own. <coughs> it means that I died when he died. See, actually when God calls us, he bids us to come and die. Come and die to ourselves and to live for him. See, my life isn't about me anymore. My life is about him. And there is such freedom in that. See, often when we talk about Jesus to our friends, we sell Jesus as a friend, which he is. He totally is a friend. But we sell him as, oh, he can help you with this. You can talk to him about this. But we don't often sell him, tell him as Lord. See, Lord by definition means he's either Lord of everything, Lord of all, or he's not at all. He can't be Lord over some things. See, sometimes we have to take ourselves and our stuff to the altar and surrender it and give it up to God. Give it completely over to him and say, you have it, you have everything. And sometimes that's our plans, sometimes that's our hopes and dreams, sometimes that's our desires, sometimes that's our rights, our rights to know everything. Sometimes that's offence. Some, yeah, God calls us to give that up to him and surrender and live for him. It is saying, I am the sacrifice. For you, God, my life is a sacrifice for him, for making him glorified. And it's, it's a posture of living in surrender and in submission. And it's of not just trusting in God, but also learning not to trust in myself. Matthew 10, verse 39 says, Those who lose their life will find it. I want to lose my life. So I can find it in him. But here's the thing. You can only do this once we know him. Once we know his nature 
and we know how good he is. We have to go through a process of learning how good he is and how amazing and protecting and caring and wonderful and beautiful and healing he is before we can surrender and submit. If we surrender and submit without knowing those things, then that's out of duty or legal obligation. And that's actually not a heart that God wants. See, the promise given to Abraham is that the whole world would be blessed through him. And then if we look down the line, Abraham's most famous descendant, we get Jesus. And Jesus was the substitute lamb. See, the angel said that there'd be a lamb as a substitute, but actually what they found was a ram. The lamb came later, and that was Jesus. And he took our place on the cross. He took everything, all of our guilt and our stuff and our brokenness. And the whole world would be blessed through him. See, this is the gospel. This is what the gospel is. It is a rescue mission at its core. It's very one-sided. So one-sided. Often, often as guys, you like rescue missions and rescue films and stuff like that. But we don't really like being rescued. But actually, that's what the gospel is. There's nothing we could have done to help ourselves or rescue ourselves. It is a God who comes in and rescues us. And we can't earn it. We never could earn it. We don't deserve it. See, the thing is, I am so flawed. So flawed. And he is not. I am so hurting. And he is a healer. I am so filthy and he is a saviour. It's really cool, the Lord of everything, the, the Lord God who created heavens and earth became our saviour, saved us. See, if you look at when Jesus died, um, the temple, in the temple there was a curtain going uh, separating God's presence from the rest of the people. Um, and when Jesus died, the temple was torn, giving access for everyone to be in God's presence, to spend time with God, because that was broken. Um, but actually, it's really important to note that the temple was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom, symbolising the fact that it's a rescue mission. It's God reaching down to us, rescuing us. It's nothing we could do to reach up to him. There's nothing we could have done. It's the rescue mission of God. And it is scandalous. It is in its nature. It doesn't make sense. In fact, the Bible describes it as foolishness. The foolishness of God. But it's so good. And I want to come with an invitation. First of all, to upgrade our image of God. To let him reshape what we think, what we really think about him. What we really deep down in our core believe about him. To let him reshape that, invite him in. 
to show you what's going on there with what you believe and to upgrade that and ask him for an upgrade and then let our lives flow out of that, out of that change. And there's also an invitation to surrender. After, the, after we see how good God is to surrender, to learn to trust when it doesn't make sense because he has spoken and he is good. And that's the invitation I want to leave you.